Hi, everybody. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. And along with my brother, Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, so much is happening in the world this week. We've got the Feast of Tabernacles happening around the world. We'll be talking to our friend Paul Scharf and R.C. Merle will be here talking about hyperinflation. What else could be happening this week? Jimmy, it is amazing. There are so many things. You know, when we were talking to our guests, there was just so many items to cover that we hardly had time to put it all into one hour and a half segment. But that's what we're going to do. That's right. Rick, and I've got to tell you, I always like how you interview and and the questions that you talk to our guests about. You've thought these out. I'm looking forward to this week's program as we get uh, an update on geopolitical issues, issues from Israel, and uh, issues confronting the body of Christ today. Well, let's get started with our program today. Our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have got our expert in geopolitical affairs, Ken Timmerman. He's with us today. He's an author and an analyst. You can find out more about him and sign up for his newsletter. Find out about the books that he's written by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we've got quite a few things to get to today, but we'll start with this Russia-Ukraine crisis, and NATO is getting involved, meeting with Zelensky of Ukraine to, quote-unquote, end Russian aggression. Well, this is not the first time that Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, has gone to Kiev or met with Zelensky. Uh, They get together quite a bit, and Stoltenberg is a big supporter of the Ukrainian war. This time in his visit this week, uh, he said that NATO has contracts for two and a half billion dollars to send ammunition to Ukraine, uh, howitzer shells, anti-tank guided missiles, anti-tank ammunition, etc. But, you know, he is also a partner in war. He made a statement in Kiev, which I think is very important. He said, uh, uh, the stronger Ukraine becomes, the closer we come to ending Russian aggression. Russia could lay down arms and end its war today. This is a direct quote. Ukraine doesn't have that option. Ukraine's surrender would not mean peace. It would mean brutal Russian occupation. Now, I think that's a, uh, it, it sounds good on the surface, but when you dig into that, Rick, it's a meaningless statement because uh, there is no way that Ukraine is going to militarily win the war. What they may do, and Stoltenberg mentioned this, and and the former British chief of staff, General Richard Sharif, mentioned this as well, Ukraine needs to make some major breakthrough on the battleground and then essentially sue for peace. There have to be negotiations. That's the only way this war is going to end, and they're just not there yet. Remember, One important thing from the past, von Clausewitz, uh, important German strategic thinker, told us that war is politics by other means. Well, politics is war by other means. Sometimes you have to exhaust the dogs of war to get back to a political negotiation. And right now, the dogs of war are still very hungry and very active. Well, they certainly are. And Ken, I'd just like to get your take on this. This somewhat is a territorial dispute. This is a long-running animosity between these two countries. But you look at this, and there are many in the West that are saying this is an existential threat for all of Europe. 
I know that there are many people who are saying that. I don't believe it. I don't think Putin has the military capabilities, and I think he realizes he doesn't have the military capabilities for a major war against all of Europe or all of NATO. If he had wanted to do that, he's had many opportunities to do so already. He could have moved against Poland. He could have moved to take the Baltic states. He's done none of that because NATO still has tremendous, tremendous military capabilities. And I think what Putin is doing is something very different. He's not preparing for an all-out war with NATO. He is really looking at historic claims that Russia has on Crimea. Uh, Crimea has been Russian for hundreds of years. It was only transferred to Ukraine in 1992. And he's looking to do what Hitler did in the Sudetenland, which is to come to the aid of Russian nationals living inside Ukraine in the Donbass. Now, you can think of that what you want, but those are two very limited war aims. They are not the aim of an all-out war. We have to be very careful and we have to be level-headed. A lot of the analysis that you listen to here in the West is not level-headed. It's war, war, war until victory. And that's just not going to happen. One nation that has to be very careful about how they interact because they have issues with both Russia and Ukraine is the nation of Israel. We talk about them a lot on this program. And you look at this situation, they have not really intervened on either side. That's somewhat controversial in and of itself, but they have provided some Ukrainian nuclear safety aid, some technological information, which now has the Russians saying that they are supporting Nazis. Can you explain what that's about? Well, that has been something the Russians have claimed from the very beginning. They've said that they one of the reasons that they went into Ukraine was to overthrow a Nazi regime led by a, a secular Jew, Zelensky, a bit ridiculous on his face, but not totally ridiculous because uh, Ukraine has a horrible, horrible past. Uh, during World War II, over a million Jews were massacred in Ukraine by the Galicia division of the Waffen SS. So this is a very, very real history. It is something that the Russians have never forgotten and never will forget. Israel has treaded, as you said, very carefully here. They've not provided weapons to Ukraine, giving civilian assistance to the Ukrainian nuclear reactor to to allow the Ukrainians basically to keep it online safely without the risk of some kind of meltdown is something I think that Israel feels justified in doing. And I and I don't see that they're going to come in for a lot of um, international condemnation. But I want to say one thing very important here, Rick. This war has got to end with negotiations. And at some point, the United States has to find a way to convince Ukraine that they've made enough strategic gains on the battlefield to sue for peace and then perhaps find security guarantees that we can offer to Ukraine without NATO membership, but security guarantees nevertheless that would be acceptable to Russia because you cannot end a war without both parties agreeing. I agree with you, Ken, very much so, and we'll continue to keep an eye on that situation. But we'll move away from the Ukrainian crisis, and we'll go to another nation in the Middle East, Iran. And we've learned this week that there was an Iranian experts initiative to gain influence in the United States. Can you tell us what's going on there? Well, this is something that uh, many Iranian Americans and myself have warned about for many, many years. We've seen these pro-Tehran intellectuals 
think tank so-called experts who have consistently been taking the positions of the Iranian regime, whether it's in the nuclear negotiations or towards Israel or towards America. And now uh, there's a trove of emails from the former Iranian foreign minister Javad Zarif and some of these experts that was made public this week by Iran International Television and an online news outlet called Semaphore that shows that this is not just something that we suspected, this was very real. These uh, emails show that Zarif was coordinating with these experts uh, to influence U.S. policy, to influence the negotiating position of the United States during the nuclear negotiations in 24, 2015, and later on to sell the nuclear agreement in the United States to the U.S. public. Where this gets really uh, dicey, Rick, is that some of these experts are now in key positions in Biden administration. One in particular, Ariana Tabatabai. She is right now currently serving as the chief of staff of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations. And the notion that she would be essentially an Iranian regime agent of some sort, coordinating with the Iranian regime, uh, seeking policy guidance, as the emails show that she was doing before she joined the U.S. government. That is very troubling. That is a security threat. And I'm, I, I, I would hope that that is something that the FBI would be investigating. Very concerning issue there. We'll keep an eye on that. But we're going to move to China. And China is investing unprecedented resources in disinformation. This is 21st century stuff. We've talked in the past about how they are building militarily traditional military assets. But now they are investing in disinformation. Can you tell us about that? Gee, Rick, why should I be so surprised to hear about this? Uh, we're learning that the Chinese have thousands of bots on Facebook and other social media to support their propaganda, that they're using China Central Television, a state outlet, to help foreign news organizations, again, to package Chinese propaganda uh, and, and lots of other things as well, influencers on social media and much, much more. Now, what is surprising is not that. To me, what is surprising is the fact that we are talking about this because the State Department on Thursday released a report from its Global Engagement Center on how the People's Republic of China seeks to reshape the global information environment. And they went into many of these operations in great detail, uh, put the report out in English, Arabic, French and Spanish, because those were some of the main areas where the Chinese were active so far. The State Department has really taken a very soft line towards communist China. So I was surprised to see that they published this report. That, to me, is the big takeaway that this could signify uh, a change of heart at the State Department towards Chinese communist propaganda. Very interesting. And that all took place against the backdrop of drills this week, military drills near Taiwan, which they said targeted the arrogance of the separatists. Uh, are we on a countdown to uh, when we have a situation like the Russian-Ukrainian crisis? We're going to have a Chinese-Taiwan crisis soon, too? Well, here's the big problem, Rick, is that the Chinese understand Joe Biden. They understand that Joe Biden is weak. How would Biden respond if China were to invade Taiwan? Are they going to push up their calendar? You know, they said that they're going to do this by 2027. We've seen statements by the head of the U.S. Pacific fleet that it could be 2025 when China invades Taiwan. So the timetable could be pushed up because they see weakness here in, in the United States. This is an increasingly tense situation, Rick. 
Well, Ken, as always, you have a wealth of information. You report on these incidents taking place all across the world, which are uh, providing our geopolitical atmosphere today. Thank you so much for all that you do, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. God bless. Great job, as always, Ken. And you mentioned the big three, Russia, Iran, and China. These major players, we call them the axis of evil. Yes, we are watching them again. And we are seeing how the United States is becoming non-effective. We're going to talk about the United States and Bible prophecy. Where is it? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series coming up later. we got to take a break when we come back. Our Middle East News Update right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Ministries in India sit on pins and needles every time the FCRA expiration approaches. India just extended all FCRA certificates until March 31st, 2024. The FCRA stands for the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act. John Podidi with Bibles for the World says the FCRA has been used to suspend licenses for Christian ministries accused of using funds to force conversions. Pray for wisdom for Indian believers proclaiming the gospel. Some people cringe at the thought of hearing Christmas music before October. Slavic Gospel Association has been looking forward to its annual Christmas outreach since July. Through the Emmanuel's Child Program, SGA, and partnering churches bring the hope of Christ to kids in former Soviet countries, church partners also receive resources for year-round children's ministry. Help SGA reach entire families for Christ at missionnews.org, a service of One Way Ministries. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the portion of our program. We call it our Middle East News Update. We look at news coming out of Israel in particular, but the Middle East in general. We cover it all, and to do that, we have our good friend, journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. Blessed to do it, Rick. Well, David, we were chatting a little bit before we went online here, and we were talking about explaining what is going on in Israeli politics right now and the situation between the uh, Supreme Court and the Attorney General and Prime Minister Netanyahu. It's a tough thing to do, but we have just the man to do it. Could you tell us what is going on there? Well, it is very convoluted, Rick, as I said to you before, and difficult to explain, but I'll do my best. Essentially, Prime Minister Netanyahu in 2020 signed an agreement with the Supreme Court that allowed him to rule as uh, prime minister, despite the fact that he was under indictment, four different indictments against him. So similar to uh, Donald Trump. And those have been going on for several years. 
In the agreement, uh, Netanyahu pledged that he wouldn't have anything to do with appointing judges or anything that would majorly affect the uh, judicial system. Well, of course, earlier this year in his new government, he uh, did that very thing, uh, passed uh, one law uh, connected to judicial reform, has several others on the books. And uh, his opponents, opposition, say that this is unfair. He's just trying to help himself with his own legal problems, and he shouldn't be doing this. Well, the attorney general in March, uh, Rick, sent Netanyahu a letter. This is in his own government, warning of the same thing, saying you really shouldn't be in this judicial process. You should recuse yourself from it, etc. Well, then the Knesset passed just eight days later a new law that forbids the Supreme Court from having any power to order the prime minister out of office, to recuse himself from office, as they put it in their language. So they, on Thursday of this week, they heard two petitions against that law by different groups saying this is only to benefit Netanyahu. It shouldn't be part of our basic laws. It's one-sided, et cetera, et cetera. So the court is once again ruling on the court itself, basically, and whether it has the power to throw out government laws. This was passed by 64 votes in the Knesset in March, this new law, which, by the way, it doesn't say the prime minister can never be ordered out of office, but just that it takes 75% of the cabinet ministers in his government or her, and it takes two-thirds of the Knesset members to uh, carry this out, and never the Supreme Court. The court has, under this new law, no power at all to order a prime minister out of office. So it's very controversial, passion strong on both sides, and the court is now hearing it, and we'll just have to see what conclusion they come up with. Well, the politics is certainly confusing in this situation. These things are going to play out when they do. They're going to set the stage for what's going to happen uh, in Israel and throughout the Middle East as we go forward. Let's move on. And uh, another subject that we've talked about quite a bit is this normalization talks with Saudi Arabia between Saudi Arabia and Israel. This is a groundbreaking process that's going on, but there are many complications. One of them is that uh, as part of this deal, Saudi Arabia wants a quote-unquote peaceful nuclear program. And this, the Israeli defense minister says that there could be some dangers to that situation. Could you tell us what's going on there? Well, yes, Rick, there's been some criticism of the government as a whole, the Israeli government, that there's been no public opposition expressed to this uh, Saudi demand. They want the uh, U.S. as part of this deal that uh, Biden is trying to work out. It's still far from done, but they want the United States to help with a non-weapons nuclear program. So uh, a nuclear program meant for medicine and meant for research and that sort of thing. Well, that's what Iran says it's doing. Well, that's everyone knows they're aiming to build weapons. And obviously, once you start it, it's going. So there has been criticism. And uh, Gallant, the defense minister, did express concerns this week over it publicly. Other ministers are starting to talk out about it. Ben Gavir and some of the right wing ministers are warning that this would be a terrible thing. And of course, it comes uh, at the same time as the Palestinians are stepping up their demands as part of any peace deal between the Saudis and Israel, uh, in particular wanting a full state. We had Mike Pompeo this week, uh, Rick, in the Jerusalem Post, the former Secretary of State, of course, say that he didn't see that this plan could work 
because it would demand the Saudis are going to hold to it, he said, a two-state solution. East Jerusalem would become the Palestinian capital. The Golan Heights would go back to Syria, and Israeli settlement would be stopped. So uh, he said this is just a a non-starter, in particular with Hamas and Islamic Jihad growing in power on the Palestinian street. Israel certainly at this time cannot make such a peace deal. So he basically poured cold water on the whole process. And uh, so whether it amounts to anything, I've warned about this uh, on your program the past few weeks, that definitely Netanyahu would have to dismiss his two uh, right-wing nationalist parties and bring in some centrist parties if he was to accept anything even remotely like that. And he said all along he doesn't believe a two-state solution might ultimately work, but it's not ready at our time. So he would have to change his own tune. I just don't see this going anywhere. It's uh, being pushed by the Biden White House, which I think is becoming weaker and weaker all the time in America and around the world. So I don't think it's going to happen. Well, as you mentioned, one nation that would be very much against this kind of peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel is Iran. And uh, news coming out this week that they potentially have terror cells operating inside of Israel. Can you talk about that? Well, not only potentially, Rick, the Shin Bet uh, Secret Service uh, during the week revealed the existence of a five-man cell backed by Iran. Uh, They gave details, and his Palestinian was in Jordan last year where he met with an Iranian agent. They named him. He recruited him to go and get some other young guys to uh, join him in a terror cell with the aim of eventually of killing Ben Gavir, the security minister, and other senior uh, officials, and Yehuda Glick, who I know you know and I know, who is a former Knesset member and right-wing activist. These Both of these men are very active on the Temple Mount question. To assassinate them and to carry out other attacks, and in June, the indictments of these uh, five men, or the report uh, that was released, said they were ordered to set cars on fire to create havoc, and they did that in Haifa. Five or six cars were set on fire, and this agent was paying them 10,000 shekels every time they burnt down a car. They were ordered to smuggle weapons across the border from Jordan into Israel, into Judea and Samaria. It's not clear if that happened. And several other projects to photograph senior Israeli uh, police officers and some other targets of assassination. So it exists, uh, Rick. They've got the men in custody. They're interrogating them right now. The only question the Israelis have is how many more cells are out there that they don't know about. And of course, this comes as many Americans are worried that Hezbollah-backed and Islamic Jihad-backed cells uh, members are crossing the Mexican border into America. Not much seems to be done to try to stop that. So many things taking place in Israel on a political level, on a national level, when you look at the external threats that they have, and also now internally as well. Well, one final question, real quick. We've only got a minute or so left. Uh, Looking at Israel as they continue to face all of these issues, they continue to grow as not only a military power, but an economic power and a technological power. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu talked earlier this week about how they are going to proceed in this new world of artificial intelligence. Can you talk about that just a minute? Yes, it was right after he met with Elon Musk and discussed uh, this issue when he was in the States, Netanyahu. 
So he told his cabinet on Wednesday this week, they delayed the weekly meeting because he was not back from the States, and it was, of course, also the holidays. So he um, told them that uh, he wanted Israel to be the number three power in the world on artificial intelligence. The U.S. first, China second, and then Israel. He said, I'm going to, you know, free up as much funds as I can. I'm going to do programs. He said, I'm already working on an outline of something I'll present to the cabinet and to the Knesset for approval. And he said, we'll be very careful. We know this is a dangerous technology that has to be controlled. But he said, it's here. It's already functioning. It's not going away. And we can either ignore it and fall behind or we can take it by the horns. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. So we'll see. Israel's already known as the startup nation and a lot of high-tech businesses and a lot of smart people there. I can tell you that. So uh, we'll see what they do. So many things going on in Israel, both externally and internally. We look at all these things because they are setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. You're a a navigator for us. You help us through these subjects and help to explain to us what's going on. We appreciate that so much, Dave, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. You know, I'm glad to do it, Rick. God bless. Great job as always, David. You know, in Israel right now, they're in the Feast of Tabernacles. The feast begins five days after the Day of Atonement, and at the time, the fall harvest has just been completed. It was a time of joyous celebration as the Israelites celebrated God's continued provision for them in the current harvest and remembered His provision and protection during the 40 years in the wilderness. When we come back, Paul Scharf will talk to us about the Feast of Tabernacles in the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament, plus the future, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the Shepherd's Field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, let me announce to you that coming up October 13th and 14th, Louisiana Baptist University announces the Future Truth Prophecy Conference. Louisiana Baptist University, which is in Shreveport, Louisiana, is thrilled to announce its upcoming prophecy conference, Future Truth, which will bring together scholars, theologians, and seekers of knowledge to explore the fascinating world of prophecy and its significance in today's rapidly changing world. Now, I'm pretty sure that this is all going to be online. You can call the university at 318-686-2360, Louisiana Baptist University. You can be a part of this. I'll be speaking there, of course. Other friends, uh, Mario Leinart, 
Joseph Barbosa, Bill Silas will be there, Michelle Rodriguez, Lonnie Shipman, Dr. Mark Kahn. All these gentlemen are going to be there at the conference. Our Future Truth Prophecy Conference aims to provide a platform for understanding and dialogue, fostering a deeper appreciation for the role of prophecy in shaping our worldviews and beliefs. So look forward to being there with us, either in person or watching us online. Call the university, 318-686-2360. We'd love to have you there with us as we partner with Louisiana Baptist University, continuing our School of Prophecy, our School of Prophets that will be involved in the future and offering classes to understand Bible prophecy. Well, this is a time in Israel right now where Israel has just passed through Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They've started off at the three fall feasts, which would have been Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the the New Year. We talked about that last weekend, uh, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Uh, and the Jewish people take those days very serious. And we're starting and going into the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. It is the seventh and last feast that the Lord commanded Israel to observe. And one of the three feasts that the Jews were to observe each year by going to appear before the Lord, your God, in the place which he shall choose. That was one of the pilgrim feasts. Three times a year, the male Jews were required to go to the city of Jerusalem. And so today I thought it would be really important for us to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles as it can be seen in how many places it's mentioned in scripture. And I thought nobody better to do that than our friend, Paul Scharf. Paul, welcome to the program today. Thank you, Jimmy. It's wonderful to be with you. Yes, and I know that uh, you work with Friends of Israel. You're writing articles for Israel My Glory, which we'll talk about in the future, but I'm so excited for your ministry and what you do. And uh, so let's just talk about uh, Now, what they do in Israel today is they will build their booths or their sukkahs out on the the porches or their uh, balconies, and they will celebrate, as they did uh, in Old Testament times, the Feast of Tabernacles. They'll eat out there. So tell us a little bit, Paul, of what you can about the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, Jimmy, the Feast of Tabernacles is so incredibly important in the Old Testament, as we call it, the Hebrew Bible, in the New Testament, and also, some may be surprised to learn, in the prophetic future. Mm. And it, so it just sort of vibrates all through Scripture with just incredible significance from the first time that it's introduced in the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, chapter 23, verse 16, where it's called the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. And then there is also much more information given within the law of God in the book of Leviticus, the feast chapter that details the the seven major feasts that you've alluded to here. And uh, this uh, Feast of Tabernacles is described in Leviticus 23, 33, really through the end of the chapter. And then there's also very detailed instruction in Numbers 29, verses 12 through 38, which gives a day-by-day 
listing of what the people were to do during the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's all just in the law and uh, related to what the people of Israel were to do, as you said, when all the males were to appear before the Lord at this special feast. So we see how important the Feast of Tabernacles, and like you said, it was the last of the seven feasts, the holidays. Uh, sometimes we refer to them as holy days, but those were the holidays of God that God really put and said, look, take a time out, and this is what I want you to do. Yeah, and it's so interesting uh, to read these uh, prescriptions in the law for what the children of Israel were to do on this very, very special and unique feast, uh, Jimmy. And we find uh, something that I'd like to tie together to another thought a little bit later here, is that Deuteronomy 16.14 makes it clear, though all the males were to appear, especially at this feast, along like Unleavened Bread and Pentecost, we find that Tabernacles is really a feast for the whole family. It's Mm. a family celebration. Deuteronomy 16.14 And it was a time of blessing and a time of joy and rejoicing. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's so true. Even still today, it is, uh, uh, you know, a time of blessing and rejoicing for the whole family. The whole family goes out. Uh, If you're staying in a hotel, they will provide you a, a sukkah to eat your meals in. That's what the families do today. It's a very family oriented atmosphere uh, and uh, the whole family celebrates in this uh, in gathering. I like the way you said it. So uh, what else could you tell us about the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, something very interesting, Jimmy, and this is uh, just a little bit of a rabbit trail from our trek through the scriptures, but we want to be sure to include this point. Uh, Just as the Feast of Uh, Tabernacles was a family celebration for the people of Israel in the Hebrew Bible in a time of joy and rejoicing and a harvest festival. Uh, And you've used this word earlier in our interview, Jimmy, the word pilgrim. Mm. And uh, this is something I have a real passion for, is learning about our Thanksgiving pilgrims at the Ah. dawn of our country in America. And, of course, they based their Thanksgiving celebration on this Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, so we can relate, uh, because probably everyone listening has participated in a Thanksgiving dinner, and that gives us a little bit of an illustration of what it would have been like for the Jewish people as well to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, that is so true. And we have brought that up in the past. I'm glad you brought that up because those early pilgrims, that's how they modeled after uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, Paul, like all feasts, was instituted by God as a way of reminding Israelites and every generation of their deliverance by God from Egypt. And of course, these feasts are so significant in that they foreshadow the work and actions of the coming Messiah. Much of Jesus's public ministry took place in conjunction with the holy feast set forth by God. How do we see the Feast of Tabernacles in the New Testament? Well, we see it very clearly, Jimmy, in the life of the Messiah, Jesus, when he became flesh and dwelt among us, John Mm. 1, 14. Uh, literally the idea of tabernacling among us, living temporarily among us. Now, his the human flesh that he took on himself is not temporary. He 
became forever a member of the human race when he came from heaven to earth to be our Savior. Mm. But he came, and for just a time he lived among us, as it were, tabernacling among us, reminiscent of the children of Israel living in booths, in tabernacles, only temporarily and for a purpose each year at this special feast. And then, Jimmy, we see also Jesus in his last year uh, before going to the cross, very clearly celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. We see that in verse 2. And we see what Jesus did, two very important things that he did at that Feast of Tabernacles that are in line not so much with what the Old Testament says about this feast in the law, but with Jewish traditions that had developed related to uh, pouring out water Mm -hmm. to illustrate dedication to God and also illuminating the temple. And at this feast, Jesus in John 7, verses 37 through 39, that famous passage where it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And uh, he goes on in that context that people can look at in John seven thirty seven through 39. He's drawing there on scriptures such as uh, Isaiah 12, 3 and 55, 1 and Zechariah 13, 1 that talk about this idea of water flowing to show the blessing of God. And he also, at that same Feast of Tabernacles before he goes to the cross the following spring, he stands up in John 8, verse 12, and says, I am the light of the world. And that, of course, is drawing on this custom that the Jewish people had, a very elaborate method of illuminating the temple Mm. during the Feast of Tabernacles by Jesus' day. Mm. That is so, it's there's so many, as I think back, and I'm sure people are, are sitting there thinking of other passages, I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 16, um, you know, and, and, and that was six months before Christ was to be in the city of Jerusalem. Six months before, he says, I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. You remember that episode up at Caesarea Philippi? He yes. then takes Peter, James, and John, and he had told them, some of you will not die till you see me in my glory. He took Peter, James, and John mm-hmm. onto a high mountain, and Peter wanted to build. He thought the Feast of Tabernacles was beginning because mm-hmm. he wanted to yeah. build, you know, three sukkahs, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, and one for Moses. So, you know, like as you look at the, 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 those three men there, uh, Peter got way ahead of himself and, and uh, of course, didn't understand it. But the Feast of Tabernacles is not only something that was celebrated in the past, it's celebrated today, although Israel, as they celebrate it, let me remind people, Israel today, as they celebrate it, doesn't do anything for God. Right, Paul? I mean, the very first thing that a Jewish person could do that God will recognize will be his act of calling out to Jesus Christ as the true Messiah for salvation, correct? Well, Jimmy, that is so true. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Yes. He is the one who tabernacled among us. He is the one who offers to us the living water. He is the one who offers to us the light of the world. 
And though it's wonderful for us even to learn about what the Jewish people do to this very day to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, it's wonderful for them to uh, continue and maintain that heritage and all that we can learn from it. But the, the ultimate issue, as you've said, is finding the life, the light, the living water of the Messiah himself who exactly. comes to offer us the very glory of God. Exactly, exactly. And I, I just want to remind people, and, and the feast, again, were given to the Jewish people. I know a lot of churches today want to celebrate the feast, but they were given to the Jews. And and the reason I bring this up, Paul, because in the future, one of the feasts that's yeah. going to continue on into eternity is the Feast of Tabernacles. That's right, Jimmy. There's only going to be four feasts celebrated in the coming millennial kingdom and one of them one of them is the feast of tabernacles and we find uh, the feast of tabernacles amazingly listed in ezekiel 45 verse 25 Mm. it's spoken of there as one of these four millennial feasts or holidays but the passage that really and i i'll never forget jimmy when i first really understood this passage, and just it's just like uh, opening up uh, a truth about something amazing that will happen during the Millennial Kingdom. In Zechariah 14, 16 through 19, mm. it talks about this time, it's not just going to be all the males of Israel that need to go to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, Jimmy, but it's going to be all the nations of the earth mm. that are going to have to go up to celebrate the the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and most specifically the great king, to worship him. And there will be chastening on those who refuse to go to celebrate the Feast of Booths in the coming millennial kingdom, which will be really the ultimate fulfillment of Christ tabernacling with his people. Wow. Good things to think about. Again, uh, Zechariah chapter 14 talks about that future when we will celebrate it. And look, if people don't go during the millennial kingdom, there will be no rain. So everyone will be commanded to go where Jesus Christ will be seated on his earthly throne in the city of Jerusalem, in the place of Mount Moriah, God's holy mountain, that spot that through history had played an important part, the top of Mount Moriah. In the future, that's going to be the place where Jesus Christ with co-regent King David will be there in the city of Jerusalem. Paul, I'm looking forward to that time. You and I will be there as uh, Bride of Christ will be the queen of uh, 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 as Jesus is the king over the Jewish people. But we will look forward to that time into the future, correct? That is so correct, Jimmy. And you know what's even another final element of all of this? Uh, the word that John used back in John one fourteen for dwelling with uh, Christ, dwelling with his people, is used four more times all in the book of Revelation. Mm. And uh, there's one special reference where it's used in chapter 21, verse 3, where it talks about the fact that God himself will be with him. Uh, He will dwell with them. They will be his people. Wow. And uh, so God for eternity will be living, as it were, in a tabernacle with his people uh, who have trusted in him through all the ages here of history on this earth. 
we looked at it from a Jewish point of view, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and into the future at the Feast of Tabernacles. Paul Scharf, his ministry. Paul, give us your website where people can go and see some of your daily postings and your sermons. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, I'm privileged to serve as a church ministry's representative with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, and you can learn lots more about our ministries and our history in the Friends of Israel at foi.org. And my personal webpage where I post all of the resources that I produce on a regular basis and share, where you can always contact me and find all my information, that's at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, P-S-C-H-A-R-F. Mm. Thank you, Paul, so much for being with us today. We look forward to having you on again. Thank you so much, Jimmy. It's been a great privilege. Paul Scharf is extraordinarily smart when it comes to the things of the Jewish feast in Israel, and we always like to have him, Steve Herzig, Chris Katolka, the whole Friends of Israel family. It's great to have them a resource, and you can have them as a resource also. Go to their website, friendsofisraelfoi.org is their website, and we heartily encourage you to do that. Well, we're going to change directions a little bit here. And, you know, we as a ministry, Rick and I, we have our news sources that we watch, and we get information from people that is sent to us, and we watch them just like everybody else. It's our understanding of Bible prophecy that really helps us to be able to weed through the issues that we need to weed through. And I received an interview lately that I thought, you know, after hearing this interview, I needed to get a hold of my good friend, R.C. Merle. R.C., welcome to the program today. Hey, good to be back with you, Jimmy. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Hey, R.C., give us your website. You got a, You have a website extraordinaire. Oh, prophecytracker.org.org, Jimmy. Yes, that's a great website, um, and we encourage you to go there. We have a lot of new listeners each week that are, uh, you know, asking for resources. Here is a, a website. You can go to RC's website because he does watch it from a financial. He's got a, a mind. RC, I don't know your background in finances, and that's helped you to do what you do, correct? Yeah, I, you know, I, well, I spent 30, 30 plus years in the financial world, Jimmy. And uh, uh, so it was just amazing that uh, that, that I noticed uh, an opening possibly when I spoke to your dad about maybe adding some things uh, about economics uh, to the to the program, and he uh, immediately said, "Well, let's give it a try." Yes. So that's that's how this all started about thirty years. And we continued on, and, and that's why when I heard this, uh, I had to get to you. So let's talk about this. A recent Tucker Carlson broadcast from Argentina talks about hyperinflation in that country now. R.C., you've been talking about hyperinflation for a while. Hyperinflation in Argentina was caused by reckless monetary policy. What can you tell us about that? You know, Tucker described Argentina's currency as being virtually worthless. The government had allowed a near 20% devaluation of the peso that projects a 200% rise in prices by year end. And yes, reckless monetary policy like Argentina's is happening in the U.S., and that could put the entire global economy in jeopardy. R.C., you've been writing about how economics will play one of the major roles in bringing about the fall of Western democracies and the rise of the Antichrist. What can you tell us about that? 
you know, a few years ago, after talking with your dad on economics, I wrote a paper, uh, The 1% of Revelation Do Not Harm the Oil and Wine. The more I researched the prophecy, the clearer it became that the United States, and even more significantly, the global economy, was setting itself up for a future di dictatorship that would control three major areas of life on this planet. That would be politics, economics, and religion. So the black horse of Revelation 6, 5, and 6 is about economics, and specifically hyperinflation. It will dominate life on Earth during the seven-year tribulation period. R.C., you have talked about the black horse of Revelation often in our programs. How has that changed now? Well, Jimmy, the, the debt in the United States passed another milestone recently, giving us some clues that the black horse could be at the starting gate. Borrowing from Colossians 2.7 that future events cast a shadow before them, only three months ago, U.S. debt crossed the $32 trillion mark. While this past week it was announced U.S. debt cost, crossed the $33 trillion mark. That's a $1 trillion increase in debt in three months. Last week, a U.S. Treasury Department showed that the deficit, that's the gap between the U, what the U.S. spends and what it collects in taxes, crossed $1.5 trillion for the first 11 months of this year. That's a whopping 61% mm. increase for the same period of one year ago. Unlike spending sprees of the past, there was no economic crash like 2008 or pandemic like 2020 to justify it. Mm -hmm. And global debt fared even worse, reaching a record high $307 trillion, growing $10 trillion in the first quarter of 2023 alone. Wow. Okay, RC. Well, so have our elected officials made matters worse like Argentina's did? Yeah, a glaring example of the problem was the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 that not only raised inflation, but what was estimated to cost $400 billion over a decade is now more likely to cost more than $1 trillion. And that is typical of government programs. They vastly underestimate spending and deficits, reminding me of Ronald Reagan's quip that the closest thing to eternal life on Earth is a government program. Mm. So, R.C., how does this get us to the hyperinflation scenario of the black horse? You know, unlike inflation uh, that we have in the U.S. today, which has grown over the past three years, hyperinflation can happen suddenly. And it's typically defined as a price increase of more than 50% per month. Mm. That can happen with the sudden collapse of a currency like Argentina and Venezuela, who have been experiencing hyperinflation since 2016. So you agree with Tucker's warning that if hyperinflation can happen here in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I do. The, today, the United States dollar, the world's only reserve currency, is under attack by groups of nations that see the dollar being used as a weapon to keep governments in line. Mm. Jimmy, with the whole world teetering on the edge of a catastrophic debt crisis, the Black Horse, the third of 21 judgments of Revelation, is casting a shadow of global hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. So the prophecy says a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. So a quart of wheat representing one person's food for the day will cost the day's wages. But many will be forced to buy barley, a less expensive food usually used for animals. Three quarts of barley will also cost a denarius, but only the 1% will be able to afford the luxury of oil and mm -hmm. wine. When hyperinflation grips the world, food and energy prices will rise out of control, as what happened in post-World War I German Weimar Republic. In January 1923, a loaf of bread cost 250 marks. By November 1923, that same loaf of bread had risen to 200 billion marks. And that's not the worst <laughs> of it. 
while all that was happening, a mesmerizing public speaker addressed political meetings in Munich, calling for a new German order to replace what he saw as an incompetent and inefficient democratic regime. That anti-Semitic leader, Adolf Hitler, was able to use the economic crisis to become chancellor of Germany, setting the stage for the future Antichrist. Yes, he definitely was a precursor to the Antichrist. And that world leader will be someone that will see this economic situation, take advantage of it, and establish the mark of the beast. And that takes place at the midway point of the tribulation. R.C., wow, you have uh, given us something. And I always like to talk to you about these things. Number one, not to cause us to be fearful, but to be wise and understand the times in which we're living. And your analysis of this, what you see, it, it closely resembles to a time that we are getting close to the end of days. Don't you agree? I really do, Jimmy. With the world, the, the, there's not enough money in the world for the to pay back this debt. I mean, <laughs> we would have to just create more, which would only make matters worse. There is, there is. This is really what got us here to begin with: is the creation of money mm. and, and constant printing of money to bail ourselves out of crises. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we are just reaching a point to where they're, they're like dominoes start to fall, nations will fall, nations will fall, and it'll just keep perpetuating itself. If the United States world reserve currency were to falter, Jimmy, the whole world would be would be in chaos. Yes, and I, you know, it's interesting. We're coming up on an election, a presidential election. We're watching people that think that they have the answers. We were watching our administration now that is causing a lot of this hyperinflation to to take place here in the United States, as happened in Venezuela, as happened in Argentina. And uh, it is preparing the way for a one world leader to come on the scene. And that is according to Bible prophecy. R.C., give us your website one more time. I will. It's prophecytracker.org. R.C., thank you again for taking the time today to come here to keep us aware of what's going on, not to help us to live in fear, but cause us to understand the times in which we're doing and to be busy about the Lord's work. Yeah, thank you, Jimmy. It was great to be with you. God bless. Great job, as always, R.C., R.C. Merle. Prophecytracker.org is his website. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series... Where is the United States in Bible prophecy? Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Let me remind you that the Future Truth Prophecy Conference at Louisiana Baptist University is October 13th and 14th. I'll be a speaker there along with others and a great host of men that will be there teaching. I think it's available online. You can watch it. And uh, that is Louisiana Baptist University. Brand new president, brand new program there. Really excited about what the Lord has in store for this group. Give them a call at 318-686-2360. You can ask them about the Future Truth Prophecy Conference. And here's a little clue about the future. I'll be going to Korea to speak to a group there. And I know through our website, watching people that listen around the world, I see that we have listeners in Korea. Looking forward to going to South Korea to be a part of that. On our Legacy Series today, we begin a brand new series that will answer the question, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? 
We'll begin our study in the book of Genesis, chapter 10. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. But when I open up the floor for Bible prophecy questions, I'm always asked, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? Where is the United States? The other day I was in a meeting down south and I opened up for prophecy Q&A and somebody asked that question and before I could give the answer, a guy in the back said, hey, I know. I normally do not give you know, any leeway for anybody in the audience to respond to the question. But this guy was rather overbearing. So I just said, okay, sir, where do you think the United States is in Bible prophecy? He said, I don't think, Sonny, I know. I said, okay, where is it? Jerusalem. I said, sir, the question is, where is the United States? Hey, I know the question, Sonny. Uh, the answer is Jerusalem. I said, how do you get that, sir? He said, it's very simple. J-E-R-U-S-A-L-E-M. And I left just like you did. But that is the answer. That is the answer. If the United States is in Bible prophecy, it has a relationship with Jerusalem. I'll get to that in a few moments. Let's take our Bibles, though, and go to the book of Genesis. Because I want to look this morning with you at the origins of states, the origins of nations. You know, the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis is key to our understanding of not only the entire word of God, but Bible prophecy. The book of Genesis is a foundation for Bible prophecy. Everything in the first 12 chapters that is laid out there is the genesis of understanding all of Bible prophecy. Genesis, the first 12 chapters, goes like this. Genesis 1 is creation. Genesis 2, the special effects are details of creation. Genesis 3 is the fall of man. Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis 5 is a genealogy from Adam to Noah. Genesis 6, 7, and 8 is Noah and the flood. Genesis 9 is Noah after the flood. Genesis 10, another genealogy. Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel, and chapter 12, call of Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees. And in those 12 chapters, you have 2,000 years of history, 2,000 years from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. It lays out the foundation of all of Bible prophecy. Now, remember I said Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8 would be Noah and the flood. Genesis chapter 9 is Noah after the flood. Look at chapter 9 just a moment with me, and let me show you what God says to Noah and his three sons and their four wives after the flood is over. They've landed on the mountains of Ararat, which would be eastern Turkey, right over near the Russian border. And here's what the Lord says to Noah, chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Replenish the earth, or repeople the earth. There were approximately those who make up these statistics, approximately 1 billion people on the earth from the time of creation until the time of Noah's flood. 1 billion people were killed with the exception of eight souls, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, his three sons, and their four wives. Those are the only eight souls remaining after this great judgment of a worldwide flood. Now the Lord tells Noah and his sons and their wives, be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. Chapter 10 is the beginning of at least the obedience of these men 
having relations with their women and moving forward to ex- do exactly what the Lord said, repeople the earth. Chapter 10 and verse 1. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, and unto them were sons born after the flood. Now here are the sons of Jephthah. I'm not going to read them all, but let me just highlight a couple of them. The sons of Jephthah, Gomer, Magog, skip a couple, Tubal, Meshach, look at the last one in verse 3, Tagarma. Now wait a minute, I just told you that all of Bible prophecy has its foundation in the book of Genesis. In a moment or two, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 38. I have just given you the names of the personalities in Ezekiel 38 and are the nations that will be involved in that alignment of nations coming against the Jewish state of Israel in the beginning of the tribulation period. Their names come from the sons of Noah, uh, excuse me, sons of Jephthah, grandsons of Noah, and they are the ones who established the nations that we'll be talking about. Look what I'm talking about here. Look at verse 5 of chapter 10. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, and in their nations. Now, what happened over in chapter 11 of the book of Genesis is that the people all of the earth were speaking one language. Because of that, Nimrod was able to go into the face of God, and instead of doing what the Lord had told him to do in chapter 9 and verse 1, be fruitful, multiply, repeople the earth, he instead said, no, we're not going to fill this earth with people. We're going to build a great city. It will be the beginning of my kingdom. I'm going to set everything in place. And the whole world followed him and got in line behind him. Because of that, then God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit came down, chapter 11, confused the languages. Now we're looking at a world with so many different languages, nobody's really able to understand each other until they start finding those who are speaking a common language and start coming together to establish a settlement of some type. Once they have done that then, They are going to have children, some of them, they'll teach their children a language, and then they'll move to a location to establish a nation speaking that language. Now, that is the beginning of all nations. Look again at verse 5. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands, everyone after his tongue. And so they started learning the language that uh, the Lord had given to them at that place in Babel. After his tongue, after their families, they started raising families in their nations. They established nations. Let's think about this just a moment. You can go to any historical geographical textbook on biblical lands and you can look up Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. When you do that, you're going to see that Magog went to the north of the Caspian and Black Sea with his family, teaching them a language. North of the Caspian and Black Sea, if you know anything about geography, would be what we know as modern-day Russia. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma went south of the Caspian and Black Sea, and that would be in the geographical area that we know today as modern-day Turkey. In fact, I was in Turkey doing some television not too long ago, picked up an ancient Turkish map, and that Turkish map was relating to me that during biblical times, Turkey was divided into four parts. Those four parts, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. And so we see that the sons of Jephthah, grandsons of Noah, took their families, taught them a language, and went to a geographical location and established a nation. Now let's look at verse 6. This is the next son. This would be Ham. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizram and Put and Cana. 
Now let me just think through you with you who these people are. When you come to Cush, Cush is what we know today as the area of Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan. Mizoram is modern-day Egypt, Put is modern-day Libya, and Cana is modern-day Israel. And so we see now that additional nations are coming into existence as well. And this is laying out for us a very interesting concept. Right now, here in chapter 10, we're 262 years away from Abraham ever coming on the scene. Did you hear what I just said? Right now, in this passage of Scripture, I got the number from the genealogies. Don't throw away genealogies. There's some great truth in genealogies. There's a genealogy in chapter 5 that sets up for the reason Noah was able to escape the flood and his family. A genealogy in chapter 10 laying out for us where these peoples go to establish nations. Chapter 11, a genealogy bringing us to Abraham. And if you look at chapter 10 with Ham having these boys, Cush, Mizoram, and Put, and Cana, you'll have to realize that Abraham's not on the scene. It's 260 years plus before he's ever kind of come on the scene. And by the way, listen to me, that's going to be a number of years before Ishmael ever comes on the scene. Here's my point. Ishmael did not father the Arab world. I just established that Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, Egypt, the most populated Arab world, Arab nation in the world, and Libya are involved as sons of Ham, grandsons of Noah, establishing nations. How do I know they established nations? Look here in verse 20. Now, these are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, in their nations. One I didn't throw in, Cush has a son named Nimrod. And verse 10 of chapter 10 says the beginning of his king was Babel in the plains of Shinar. That's the area of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. The plains of Shinar would be what we know as modern-day Iraq, another Arab country. Let's just uh, take a moment and go to the book of Genesis chapter 16 with me. The book of Genesis chapter 16. In chapter 16, we see what is going to happen as it relates to the birth of Ishmael. Again, if we're going to understand the nations, we've got to understand who they really are. Ishmael did not father the Arab world. Abraham did not father the Arab world. They did father one nation. Let me tell you who they are. Chapter 16 and verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaiden, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abraham, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maiden, and it may be that I may obtain children by her. And so Abram hearkened unto the voice of his wife, Sarah. He goes in unto Hagar. He impregnates her. They are going to have a son. His name is going to be Ishmael. Oh, by the way, where was Hagar from? Oh, the first verse says she was an Egyptian. That verse right there should show you that Ishmael did not father the Arab world. Unless, now I, I have a PhD doctorate, I don't have an MD. But I think if there's an MD in the audience, you could probably confirm this. It's impossible for a man to father his mother. I think that's correct. And if that be the case, Ishmael couldn't father Hagar, an Egyptian. So Ishmael certainly didn't establish the Egyptian people. Look what it says over here. The Lord does meet with 
Jesus Christ I'm talking about in a pre-incarnate appearance does meet with Hagar. Look at verse 8. And he said unto Hagar, Sarah has maiden, whence camest thou? And he was asking what she was concerned about. And then he said unto her in verse 10, and the angel of the Lord said, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly. That, by the way, the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And that you shall be, uh, be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thine affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. There's a character uh, analysis of what Ishmael is going to be like, a wild man raising his hand against every man, every man's hand against him. Uh, But indeed, he's going to father a nation. It didn't say nations, a nation. Look what it says here in verse 20 of chapter 17. Uh, The Lord Jesus again appears to Abraham. He's had this son, Ishmael, and here's what he tells him. Verse 20, and as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and I will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he begot and I will make him a great nation, one nation. Ishmael became the father of one nation, not the many nations of the Arab world. This is key to understanding Bible prophecy. Next week, we'll see which nation was fathered by Ishmael as we continue to answer the question, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Ministries in India sit on pins and needles every time the FCRA expiration approaches. India just extended all FCRA certificates until March 31st, 2024. The FCRA stands for the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act. John Podidi with Bibles for the World says the FCRA has been used to suspend licenses for Christian ministries accused of using funds to force conversions. Pray for wisdom for Indian believers proclaiming the gospel. Some people cringe at the thought of hearing Christmas music before October. Slavic Gospel Association has been looking forward to its annual Christmas outreach since July. Through the Emmanuel's Child Program, SGA, and partnering churches bring the hope of Christ to kids in former Soviet countries. Church partners also receive resources for year-round children's ministry. Help SGA reach entire families for Christ at missionnews.org, a service of One Way Ministries. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. 
If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, a chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end times prophecy book that God has preserved in his scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the time of the program, Rick, where we take a look back. We try to collect our thoughts as to this really running through the geopolitical aspect of the world, decisions that world leaders are making uh, here in America, in Iran, in Russia, in Saudi Arabia, in China, uh, all over the world, in the Middle East. And then, of course, uh, we're looking at the Feast of Tabernacles that we talked with Paul Scharf on. What are, your, what are your thoughts on today's program? Well, Jimmy, one of the things that really struck me is the fact that so many things are happening all at once. If you look at Europe, you look at the European Union, you look at Russia, and it seems like with that nuclear threat, it just makes everything so much more intense. You look at Iran and you see the protests that are going on there, and it seems like that could be the match that sets something off. But if you look at the events that are going to take place in the end time, it seems like they could just go immediately. And and one thing that is just in God's timing, I mean, it could happen tomorrow, the events that God has set forth to take place in the future, but it's just in God's timing. It seems like he's just holding off. Yes. You know, and this is not the first time in history where we have felt like we've been at the threshold of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you could go back, especially if you go back to 1948 and I've always, now I wasn't alive, Rick, and you weren't either, uh, (laughs) but we do know people and we've talked to people when Israel became a nation again, people thought the next day that the rapture was going to take place. It wasn't God's timing. Go through history from that beginning point on, we could talk about other points in history as we've been doing this program over the last 20 years with our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, you and I have been working on it, producing it, being involved with it. We have been on the threshold of, wow, I mean, how can the rapture not be today or in the next few moments? And today, again, we're here at that point where we're watching, but we do understand. Uh, And really, if we believe in an imminent event, the rapture could have taken place immediately after Christ ascended into the heavenlies, after his resurrection in the city of Jerusalem, he ascended into the heavenlies. That's Acts chapter 1. Church begins in Acts chapter 2, but really, if you believe in an imminent event of his, the rapture could have happened immediately after he ascended into the heavenlies. But 2,000 years later, it hasn't happened. And it might not happen for another 20 years, Rick. You and I, as we look at this, man, it's going to happen tomorrow or today or in the next few moments. But we do know that the only thing that has to happen As far as when we look at Bible prophecy, there are very few things. There's nothing that needs to happen before the rapture of the church takes place. What is it? Well, 2 Peter. Peter says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3, verse 9. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the beginning of prophecy starts to unfold, you know, after the rapture of the church. So what is God waiting for? 
while he's moving all the parts and pieces in place as we've seen today. And then, of course, he's waiting for people to come to know him uh, as the Heavenly Father, as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ that died on the cross, the Lamb that took away all sin for all of mankind. And that is his plan, his plan for redemption for all of mankind. And that's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for people to come and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's certainly a great thought. And and it just goes back to we often ask our guests, especially the ones that are Bible teachers, why study Bible prophecy? And of course, the first reason is it's in the Bible. It's there. Mm. Some 30% of the Bible is prophecy. So if if God wanted us to yeah. study it, that's why he put it in there. But the other reason is, if this doesn't motivate you, all these things taking place, and we know God has written the end story, and he's given it to us to let us know what's going to happen. If this doesn't motivate you, I don't know what else would. I agree wholeheartedly. You know, Daniel, by reading the the, the prophet Jeremiah, he understood the times in which he was living. That's Daniel chapter 9. You know, us as believers, as we read God's word, it's to help us to understand the times in which we're living. Uh, it's exciting times. I, I mean, and you have to understand how I say that. It's exciting in the fact that we are getting closer and closer every single day to the rapture of the church. Yes, it's going to be tough times, but it's going to be way tougher during the tribulation period. And, you know, what we have, the everything in God's word is to prepare us in order to live in this world until either he takes us home at death. Or, and, and our, our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, uh, he never thought that he would go, he would die. He mm. knew he was going to go in the rapture of the church. But in any case, we are to understand what our role is here on this earth. And the other thing that really strikes me, Jimmy, is basically the Christian community around the world is facing persecution, and we know that is only going to accelerate as we get closer to God's end-time scenario and the events that are going to take place in the tribulation. It really puts it at the forefront of our mind to continue to pray for them and support them. You know, Paul, in his instructions to Timothy, he said, you know, if you're not suffering persecution, then you're doing something wrong. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing, Rick, but, you know, if you are not, uh, you know, at least, if people don't recognize that you're a Christian, you can't be a secret believer. We do have it easy. We've had it easy. But I've always challenged young people when I speak in schools. I've challenged older folks. I've ch challenged parents as they teach their kids. You know, America might not be that nation that we all grew up with, a free nation. We are watching Christians around the world, whether it be in Iran, India, Pakistan, any Muslim nation where you have Christians that live there, they're being persecuted. It could happen to us here in America. As believers, people should see that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And because you are a follower, they're going to persecute you. Not because of who you are, but because of who you follow. And that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Well, Rick, uh, I appreciate all that you've done on the program this week. And I really do want to thank you so much for your thought out process. Because we use a systematic way of thinking when we're thinking about the questions and the interviews that we're going to do and the topics we're going to touch. Don't we do that? 
We do, and Jimmy, I'm happy and blessed that I could be able to do that. Yes, well, this week uh, we have looked at the world on the threshold. <laughs> Again, I'm pretty sure next week when we return on the program, we're going to see a world that's on the threshold of uh, <laughs> Armageddon or the rapture taking place immediately, and that's what we get up every day expecting. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.